have your Bibles, Habakkuk chapter 2. If you don't, it'll be on the screen here in just a few, uh, few moments. Um, I just want to share a couple things that, that I thought were pretty cool this week uh, in the life of our church here. Uh, um, uh, one Thursday night, uh, Primetimers is a group of people that get together uh, once a month on a Thursday night and eat, and those, those folk eat, you know what I'm saying, and have a good time. Um, and so I had the opportunity to go check, uh, check in on them and hang out with them. Didn't get to eat this time, but... Uh, to hang out with them for a few minutes, and so it uh, looked like they had a good group, and so it's just neat to see the fellowship that takes place there, the Christ uh, in that group of people. Um, and then also on that same night, uh, our women's ministry here uh, did a f- uh, kind of a, a fundraiser, a painted-up fundraiser uh, event, and so in that, um, I think they had about 26, 27 people um, be a part of that to paint stuff, and so, um, uh, and, and the cool thing about that is that some of the money that they raise will go to a family for Christmas to help support the family, get gifts for that family, for kids, things like that. That was, that was pretty cool. Um, and then something else that took place this week was uh, a group, I don't know if it was a discipleship development class, a small group, but there were a group of people that got together and said, hey, we want to go to the soup kitchen. And so they got a group together, went down to the soup kitchen and served at the local soup kitchen here in Spartanburg and just loved on people and just gave out food and things and um, was, was just, a, just an amazing, amazing time from what I've heard. Um, as some of the adults that went took their kids and so their kids get to see and be exposed to things on how to serve and how to love like Christ would. Um, and then I had a conversation with somebody um, this week in our church that's a, that's a teacher and in the conversation was just sharing with me how one of the students that they have uh, just got saved and as that student got saved was asking me questions on how, Scott, how can I better disciple? How can I better love like Christ and walk with this person? And so um, it was just really, really cool to have that kind of a conversation with a teacher in the public school system uh, to be able to just share Christ openly and be able to just kind of try to pour into and love on and walk with. And uh, I thank God that they've got the heart and uh, the desire that, that it doesn't end at salvation, but that, I mean, I've got a responsibility and a calling in this kid's life to try to help them advance and in, in, in mature and grow in their relationship with Christ. And so uh, for me as the pastor of this church, man, th- this past week is just one of those weeks I kind of just walk away like, yes, ah, ah. And I did that in the mirror this week, and it was, um, so I just, I just thought that, church, keep it up, man. You, you keep being the hands and feet of Jesus, and you keep loving well, and you keep serving well, and you keep showing this world what it looks like to love Christ, whether you're eating at a restaurant together as a group, or whether you're in the school system trying to love on kids and help them gain an education, all while really gaining the true uh, greatest education that they could ever get. And so uh, we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 2 this morning, and so just kind of catch us up real quick. What we see so far is Habakkuk. Um, he enters into a conversation with God. He engages God in conversation, um, and he begins to tell God how wicked and how sinful and how rebellious uh, the nation of Judah is being, and then what happens is God responds. God responds back to Habakkuk in a way that Habakkuk doesn't like, in a way that Habakkuk isn't ready for, and then Habakkuk goes back, and he tells God that, that there's, God, there's no way that you would handle it that way. Anybody ever tell God what he should do, how you think that he should handle the situation? Well, Habakkuk does it. I like, like, I love the realness of Scripture, do you not? They get in this conversation, and he tells God, and God's like, yeah, okay, I see that. This is what I'm going to do. And then Habakkuk's like, whoa, God, I don't like that you're going to do it that way. And so they start to have this conversation that goes even further. And um, God just reminds Habakkuk in this conversation of how limited and little and small and minute he truly is. And so what happens last week as we look at God respond to Habakkuk's questioning of how God's going to uh, answer and move and, and how God's going to uh, do some things in these people. In Judah, he's going to discipline. 
And then what he does last week as we looked is he pronounces judgment over the Chaldeans and the Babylonians uh, as he says that the people uh, that the Chaldeans have conquered, what's going to happen is they're going to rise up and they're eventually going to uh, conquer the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. And so God's, God said, hey, Habakkuk, just pump the brakes, man. I'm working something greater and bigger than you could ever imagine. And it's going to get rough for a little bit, but I'm doing that to accomplish what I need to accomplish and do. And so that's where we're at in the story. I'm going to ask you if you would uh, join me as we pray, and then we'll jump into Habakkuk 2 and finish up chapter 2 this morning. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you uh, again for this opportunity to gather, again for this opportunity to hear your word proclaimed. Father, I pray you remove me from all of this. And Father God, that your words would be louder than any. God, that your Holy Spirit, that he would fall heavy on this place and that he would instruct that he would convict, that he would encourage God, that he would draw. Father, I want to pray as I do every week for the one here that maybe doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that effectual call would just start to get louder and louder and louder in their heart. God, that you would open them up to the reality of their lostness. Father, for the one hurting in this room this morning, I pray that this is a sweet salve on that wound. God, I pray that you just move in a mighty way. And Jesus, all this is for you. Father God, all of this is for you. Lord, I know we're going to look at some difficult truth this morning. So God, I pray that you prepare our heart. God, prepare my heart. God, do whatever in me, do whatever in your people that you see fit to make us more like you and less like us, less like this world. Jesus, we need you. In name we pray. Amen. Um, so just kind of a little, little pre-warning here as we're about to dive into Habakkuk. We'll finish up chapter 2, and then what's going to happen is the next two weeks, things are going to speed up tremendously as we'll cover the whole chapter of chapter 3 um, in two weeks. So we'll, we'll, next week we'll cover a portion of chapter 3, and then the following week uh, we'll cover uh, the remainder of chapter 3 of Habakkuk and be finished with the book of Habakkuk as we uh, turn the corner into Christmas and get ready for all the festivities and, and the, re- the reason for the season uh, there. But what we need to pay attention to here is a, a word that Habakkuk uses at the very beginning. I believe it's a word that we in our culture, in our world, it's it's very relevant. It's a word that um, I would venture to say that all of us in this room struggle with. Every single one of us. So uh, there may be some sting here this morning, uh, and I just want to encourage you that whenever the Holy Spirit uh, convicts, whenever the Holy Spirit uh, presses upon us um, areas in our life that, uh, where he makes us uncomfortable or he calls us out on some things, I just want to encourage us to walk in that and really see what he wants to do in those moments. And so this is what the prophet Habakkuk says. This is Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 18. He says this. He says, what prophet is an idol? And so an idol is a thing that is loved or a person that is loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, or enjoyed more than God. It's a person or a thing that is elevated above uh, the rightful place of God, that, that is put in place of where God should be. That is, that, uh, we don't like to use the word worship for idols because that just kind of makes us dirty, especially in church. Like We would never worship something else. But the reality is anytime we replace uh, the rightful position of God with anything, whether a person or a thing, in essence what we're doing is worshiping whatever it is we have replaced him or bumped him down to second chair with. And so, just, just hear that. What prophet is an idol? And, and it's kind of a goofy question, isn't it? I mean, like, we are so much further sophisticated than the people here in the Scriptures, right? I mean, it's 2019. We're rounding the corner to 2020. And, and so we are so much further along, so we think. And so as he writes this, as, as he has this conversation with God, and God asks him, what prophet is an idol? Uh, let me ask you that question. What, what good is an idol in your life? 
But what good is a thing in your life that you worship, that you value, that you long for, that you want, that precedes that of God? And, and it's really a rhetorical question, right? Because the answer should be nothing. The answer should be nothing. So it's anything that's loved, desired, treasured, enjoyed more than God. And so let's, let's just talk for a second about some idols that, that's in our world. It could be a spouse. It could be a relationship, right? You could elevate a relationship with a man or a woman, a girlfriend, boyfriend, a spouse, above that of God. And it's so easy to do, is it not? Because they're there in the flesh and blood. They're physical. They're there. You can uh, talk to them. They talk back to you in a way that you can understand immediately. I mean, there's a lot of different things that happens in relationships there where, where that could be elevated. Maybe another thing that could be an idol in your life is approval from other people. Maybe if you're in school, it could be grades. Maybe it could be success in a business. Maybe it could be sexual stimulation. Maybe it could be a, a hobby. Ooh, this is a good one. A musical group or a favorite team. I mean, one of the most holiest days of, of the week is Saturday, is it not? We won a game, brothers and sisters. The Mountaineers are back on the climb. And they were in the top 25. There is a God. I knew it, see? That's, that proves it. West Virginia won a game. So it's so easy, is it not, to, to elevate and to lift high and to make uh, uh, Saturday a holy day or a team or even today Sunday at 1 o'clock a, a holy gathering above that of God. I mean, it could be something as crazy as your immaculate yard, and that list could what, go on and on and on, and we could list for days the things that we value or treasure or desire oftentimes more than God. And so the thing about adultery is that idolatry is it starts in the human heart. It's the activity of the human heart. It starts in the heart by cravings or wantings or enjoying or being satisfied by anything that we treasure more than God. That is an idol. That is an idol. Anything that we treasure or value more than God. Charles Spurgeon, this, um, and just a mammoth of a man of God in his day, this theologian, he says this, he says, whatever a man depends upon, whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight is his God. Little g, God. Whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object, the main object of his delight, whatever he delights in and is glad over, that is his God that has become an idol. And I just want to echo what is said here. What prophet is that? What profit, honest to goodness, church, is that if it's anything other than our God? Anything other than our God. Look at what the scripture says as he continues on. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. And so what we'll do is we'll create for ourselves an idol, and we'll put that trust in that idol. We'll put our desires and our affections and our love in that idol. And so I've been in ministry for a little over 15 years, and I just want to just, I just, I just want us to walk through, and this is where it'll start to get a little probably uh, stingy here for a moment, but I just want to walk through some things that I believe that, that we've made popular that, that we would consider to be idols. And so the first thing I want to look at that we have elevated to an idol is self, is ourself, is us. We are uppermost in our affections often, are we not? We love ourselves way too much, do we not? We desire our pleasure and our comfort above anything else. We have lifted ourselves up and placed ourselves in a position that we were never created to be, on, be in. 
And so the reality is this, nobody in this room loves you more than you. Nobody in this room thinks more of you than who? It's in every one of us. I mean, think about it as you go throughout your day. Who do you serve most? Yourself. Who are you most interested in pleasing? Yourself. Who do you want to be happy above all things? Yourself. It's bred into us. It's, it's force-fed into us, is it not? I mean, look at everything. All the self-help books, all the uh, you deserve this jargon and, and talk and uh, a verbiage out there. You've worked hard. You deserve. You should be happy. You, 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 me, me, me. We have elevated ourselves and put ourselves in a place that makes God sick. Because in essence, what we've done is we've become the God of our life. We've become the God of the moment. We've become the God in that time. I mean, I, I, just, I just want to play for a second. Just, just think about even how, how it happens in the church, how it goes about in the church. Uh, maybe how uh, a church is chosen most. The thought or the mentality is, what can that church do for me? What can that church do for me? And I just believe the reason why so many don't belong to a community of faith, but rather go to several or don't fully dive in and be committed is because the belief of that church is there to meet their needs. It's there to meet their needs. Now hear me, the church should be meeting needs of people, but that should be down, down on the list. That's not the primary, utmost uh, desire of the church, the heart of the church. No, the heart of the church is to make much of God. It's to make much of Jesus, what he's done on the cross. To make much of the resurrection, to make much of his love and his grace. That's the utmost desire of the church. It's the, it should be the utmost desire of the men and women in this room. It's not what can the church do for me. Man, how can I give my life? How can I serve? How can, how can I go all in? And I believe that's why so many don't fully commit because of the fear, will they meet my need? Will they allow it to be about me? And there's not many, there's not many who, who live in a way so that their life is to benefit and serve others of the community. To give their self away. What if they don't, what if they don't give in return? What if they don't meet in return? What if they judge? What if they? And so the list grows and grows and grows. And so the heartbreaking reality is that so few truly belong to the community of faith where they can go all in and give their life away so that God gets glory and honor. Just, that's what we're trying to accomplish here. We're wanting to make much of him. And as we keep our eyes focused on him, as we walk in love and grace and mercy, and as we, as we, as we walk after him, then, then the needs of the people will be met. Because we've got our eyes off of us and we look to serve others. We've got the God of self removed. So for most people, for most people choosing a church or, or getting involved in a church, and it just shows the, uh, the self-driven mentality here, it's, a, it's about a, a preacher's personality. Are they charismatic? Are they nice? Are they cute? Okay, I don't have that one going for me. But... But, but it's stuff like that, that 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 people will look for or a style. Was he hard-nosed and just give us the word, brothers and sisters? Is he too funny? Is he not funny enough? The style in which he, is he reading from this, this translation or that translation? Or, or, or what's the style like? Is he more of a thinker and kind of gives it to us like a teacher? Or is he more of a preacher and just hammers it home? And so, so there's all these different styles that I like to look about. Or, or, or this is a good one. We'll go this way. A lot of the time, it's a certain type of worship music, brothers and sisters, that matter. Mm, it's got to be contemporary. If they ain't in jeans, it ain't a thing, right? If they're not wearing jeans when they strum that guitar, oh, got to go. He's in khakis. That's not relevant. 
I mean, how goofy and crazy is that? What they dress like or what they look like when they lead worship matters? Without ever knowing their heart? Is it contemporary? Like Chris Tomlin's just enough contemporary or is he not enough contemporary now? Like, like there's all these styles that we like to, to gauge upon. We could care less about the lyrics. Is there a guitar and is there an electric guitar that gets really loud? If not, then it's not of God. Or if it is and it's too loud, then it's not of God. I mean, where do we fall? And do they do a hymn? Praise God, if they don't do a hymn, they ain't saved. In a church, you can't go to that church. And so we get into this big argument and, and fight and, and we make it about us. What kind of songs are even singing? If it's a song that's about God, that's what it's about. It's about lifting high the name of Jesus. Do you know that there are some really crummy hymns out there? Mmm. I heard it. But on the flip, there's some really crummy contemporary songs too. There are some that's not honoring of God, some that, that teach horrific theology and doctrine on both sides of the spectrum. So, so what do we do? How do we act? And it's all about what fits me, what suits me, what makes me happy. That's all about preference. It's, it's about Jesus and him being lifted high, whether they've got just a piano and a voice, whether they've got a guitar and a whole band or an ensemble. or a choir, That's irrelevant. What's relevant is who is it about? What are they singing about? Who are they singing to? And so often we make it about us. Not about God's leading. Not about praying whether or not this is a place that God wants me to land and be a part of and give my life away and serve. And it just shows the idol of us whenever we make it about us, when we make it about a style or, a, or um, uh, make it about a need for me to be mad or what I like or what I don't like. And I, and I get it, we, we, need, we have preferences and there's nothing wrong with that. I like my man in the khakis. I also like my man in the jeans. Same way for the preacher here, man. He's going to preach in jeans and khakis and everything else in between. Just depends on what the illustration is going to look like that Sunday, Right? I mean, is that really utmost important? No, it's about Christ being exalted and made much of. And what that does is when we act that way, when we respond that way, it just shows the God of self. It's crazy. I've been in churches where people have come and because, uh, because I've preached in a certain thing or my hair's spiky or I look a certain way, they didn't hear not one word that God said that morning. That's, is that not crazy? What does that do? It just reveals that the heart is not here for God but for self. And so let's just chat for a moment about the problem of self as an idol. Because what I've learned, and I think I've already said this, what I've learned is we make crummy gods. I mean, do we not? I mean, we make awful, awful gods. I mean, as we looked and we talked about throughout the series and even the last few weeks, we, we found out real quick as God reminded Habakkuk how limited he is. And we're in the same boat, church. We are so limited. We are so puny. We can't even make a promise and it come true. We can only hope that elements outside of our uh, control doesn't fall into place to prevent us from being able to, to do what we promised. And we're limited when it comes to knowledge and the know-how. Let me give you an example. Like this week, we got a new rolling chair, a new, new office chair. Open up the box, and there's four pieces. I like to think of myself as an educated guy, halfway smart, college degree, graduated high school, college degree, all that good stuff. I got that going for me. That's in my corner. It's a rolling chair for Pete's sake with four pieces. 30 minutes in, I have to turn to the instructions. Four pieces, 30 minutes in. This is a two-minute job. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Because I'm limited. I'm not all-knowing. The, the gentleman, apparently, whoever decided that it would be a good idea to make it with just four pieces... 
put it together and he made instructions of which I had to turn to 30 minutes in to figure out how to put this chair with four pieces together. It, it just shows my limitedness. It shows our frailty and our fragileness. That's what it does. We're not all-knowing. We can't make a promise and keep it unless God allows for elements to fall into place and circumstances to fit just perfect. We are limited and make crummy gods. And so idolatry is just, it's a funny animal because what it does is it, it rarely dwells in morally dark things. Now, idolatry rarely dwells in, in morally dark things, morally bad things. It, it almost always dwells in positive things that, are, that, that end up being made ultimate. So, so let me give you an example. So taking care of yourself. That's, that's a good thing, right? Being healthy, taking care of yourself, trying to eat good, those type of things the Bible would call as uh, uh, wise decisions. Even the Apostle Paul, as you can see some of his writings, is, is big on physical training and athleticism and as he watches and as he writes and as he gives illustration about. And so the Bible is going to talk about how we, how we eat, how we need to eat smart, how we need to avoid eating in excess, how we need to avoid eating for comfort. And so the problem is, though, when we start to use looks and fitness to identify ourselves and find worth, that becomes a huge problem, does it not? But how often does that happen? The way I look, how healthy I am, all of those type of things, which are good things. Man, how healthy am I eating right? Am I doing, am I working out? Am I being active? And so what happens, what starts to take place is this thought, if, if, if I'm better looking than someone else, if I'm stronger than someone else, if I'm more chiseled than someone else, then, then I validate myself ab above somebody else. And, and I'm better and I'm, I was going to say gooder. Should have not watched that Mountaineer game. But that's what we do, is it not? I mean, let's just think for a moment how this plays out in men and women. I mean, let's think for a second. Let's dissect this for a second. Because in men, the mentality is let's just get strong. Let's just get chiseled. I need some abs. I need some arms. I need to do more push-ups. I need to push harder. I need to go faster. I need to be bigger. I need to do all of that stuff. I've got to look good with my shirt off. And it starts to well up. And are those things bad? No. But when it becomes your driving force and your desire... When it becomes the reason because it allows you to elevate yourself above someone else or it allows you to find worth and self-value, becomes a God, does it not? And so how does it work out in women? And I want to be sensitive here because I'm not a woman. And I want to be sensitive here. And I don't want to project too much, but I just want to just things that I've heard and things that I've seen and conversations that I've had in the past is, man, the image struggles in our world today. Is it not horrific? I mean, you walk down an aisle at a grocery store to check out, and there are magazines plastered everywhere with nothing but, uh, but dolled up and fixed up and airbrushed people on covers everywhere, is it not? And, and what the society and what our culture is saying is this is what you've got to look like. This is what you've got to be like. And so what happens is it starts to play in the minds of people. And, and like I said, just conversations that I've had before in the past with women is, is do I look like that? Do I, do I look like that? Do I need to look like that? Should I look like that? And thank God I don't have a daughter. I couldn't imagine the fight and the battle in that. Telling that little girl that her worth and her value doesn't come from what she looks like. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you need to hear that this morning. What you look like or, or, or whatever size waist you have, it, it does nothing with God loving you more or less. Nothing. He loves you and he desires you and you don't have to look a certain way and you don't have to play into that and you don't have to fall into that nonsense. So what happens so often is horrific judgment comes out of it. 
it occurs when you see this woman maybe dressed to the hilt and really tight things. And I'm just thinking in my mind, what, what's going on there? Why, all I know is that spandex, I believe, is a result of the fall. That's just Satan-induced type stuff. And so if there's something broken in their soul that causes them to dress in such a way that they get external attention, church, what that should do for us is grieve our heart. Grieve our heart that there's someone that believes they've got to look a certain way or fit in a certain thing or, or have a perception of a certain thing in order to have value. It shouldn't make us angry. It should break our heart. It should sadden us that they haven't found their value in who they truly are. But it's in an image or an appearance or a size. It should grieve us. So the next thing that we can move to from self to the mind. The mind can become a God real quick. Our mind, the way we think. See, with information at our disposal, right? I mean, we, we can find the answer to any question within three seconds. The internet has just opened up worlds of knowledge to us. Not all good knowledge, but worlds of knowledge and know. And what happens is there's information right there. And so what happens is we become smart and we begin to pride ourselves in our brilliance, in our knowledge, in our smarts, in our know-how. And so we don't buy into anything at surface level. Nothing at surface level. It can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. It can't really be like that. And so what do we do? We're going to have to drill down. We're going to have to find out. We're going to have to know the inner workings. We're going to know the truth. We're going to know how things work. And hear me, I'm, be thinkers. Be seekers. You dig and you find and you just do it in a way that, that honors God and in a way that's not preset to one side or the other. When you research and you look, you do it with openness and, and realness and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in that. But here's where it becomes idolatry. Here's where your mind can become an idol. We're not going to believe in anything unless we can taste it, touch it, and see it. We're not going to believe nothing that anybody says, no fact. We've got to fact check everything. We're gonna, and we're not going to believe it unless it's, it's tangible and we can see it and we can taste it and we can touch it. And so what happens is our own mind, our own thinking becomes an idol. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be, right? I mean, to think that your mind, that your thoughts, that your knowledge, that, that your education are the best and the utmost. I, I don't know if you've ever done this, but it, it happens to me, and it's starting to happen more often than it should. But like, I'll just walk into a room, and as smart and brilliant, like I said, I have a four-year degree, as smart and brilliant as I am, I'll walk into the room... And as I arrive in the room, I'm like, oh. there's a refrigerator, stove, pantry, sink, cabinets. What was I doing? What was it? I'm hungry. There it is. And like 30 seconds later, it hits me what I went in there for. You ever done that? And to think that I'm going to elevate my mind, my thinking, my knowledge to utmost, that we would do that? Something else that can become an idol real, real quick if we're not careful is image. Is our image. Our image, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, where you live. All of that can be carefully thought through and constructed to produce what, what, what you want people to see, what you want people to get, the perception that you want to leave out there. Despite the fact that you don't even like most of the people that are going to see it and be like, oh, they're so cool. I mean, is that not crazy? I mean, we think like teenagers are just, ah, but we're no different, are we? little secret right here. We're no different. We want people to think we're cool too, okay? We just do a better job of hiding it, and we've got more money to hide it with and be able to do that. And we need to out us, right? It's the truth. We want perception and, and image and all that stuff for us to be, to be liked and to be cool and be accepted. 
And, and again, like I said, most of the time we do that. We have those thoughts. We're hard-pressed to try to impress those people that we really, we really don't even like ourselves. Their opinion really doesn't even matter to us. But we're doing all we can do to get enough likes or to get enough applause or to get enough approval. And social media has done nothing but just to feed into that animal, has it not? I mean, the car I drive, to the house I live in, to the stuff that I wear. I mean, the most swanky I'll go is Kohl's. And that's only if we got a 30% like, ticket, you know? I'm going to have to wait till next month we get a 30%. So really what happens is that, that debt isn't a money issue, but what it becomes is more of an image issue because you, you get your worth from the way that you look to the things that you own. And we allow that to become a God. We allow that to, to be an, a little G God and drive us. Something else that can become a God real quick is relationships. Relationships. That significant other that you have or that person that you're into, that you believe completes you, that dumb Jerry Maguire effect is what I call it. You complete me. You had me at hello. No, you didn't. I didn't know you at hello. And I'm pretty sure my wife probably thought that I was a weirdo and a little aggressive. She didn't know that I was the one in, at the moment and angels singing, and I like to think that, and that's the story that I tell when I have the opportunity. But I didn't complete her. I've never completed her. And the funny thing is, all the married people just laugh at that nonsense, because we know, man, we've been married. We know that that's not true. We know that, that the reality is that that person cannot complete us, because I've been for 12 years, and she just doesn't measure up. You know what? On the flip side, I don't even come close either, because there's only one person that can fit that mold. There's only one person that can be for us all everything we ever need, and it's Jesus, and that's it. Not a guy, not a girl, nobody but Christ. And what we do is when we elevate people to that position, what happens is they become the God that we're searching for. And they leave us just as empty as before we knew them or before we were in relationship with them. So I just want to chat for a second. Ladies, I just want to talk to you. No man will ever be able to do that for you. No man. None whatsoever. No man can do that. When you put that expectation on him, uh, it's just smothering and exhausting, and he can't live up to it. We can't, we can't do it. We're feeble and weak. Like right now, the thing that I'm trying to learn in, in my marriage and in being a dad is, is, is I'm trying to get from like the fifth time that somebody says dad, 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 to two times. Like I'm just trying to get there right now. It's like we had a talk this week. She's like, Scott, can you tr please try to be just a little bit more in tune when they say dad? I'm like, but baby, the TV's on. My undivided attention right now is, I mean, ESPN, babe, come on, you know? And, and so we're so limited. Hear me, he, he can't do it. it. It doesn't matter how romantic, it doesn't matter how creative, it doesn't matter how careful and thought out he is. Only God can be the one that completes you and fulfills you. And men hear me too, because that woman can't be all that for you either. She can't. That's a weight that you put on her that she will never live up to. Never. Ever. She can't be all for you. Only Jesus can do that. So no matter how loving, no matter how servant-minded she is, no matter how great her waffles and eggs are, she can't be and fulfill for you the thing that only Christ can be and do. So relationships, dating and marriage can be another idol. And I just want to press this here this morning because, hear me, you need to learn to love your mate's soul well beyond their body or service. You need to learn to love their soul and value and cherish them as a person far beyond their body or far beyond what they can do for you. 
You, you've got to get to that place. If a man comes into a marriage and says, woman, it's supposed to be all of this for me, or if a woman comes into a marriage and says, man, it's supposed to be all of this for me, that, that expectation is unrealistic and usually ends in divorce. But if you enter into it seeing and valuing, cherishing their soul and who they are and who God created them to be, man, that kind of a relationship, that kind of a marriage, man, that can blossom into something that's amazing and God-honoring. And that's how we need to enter because if we're not careful, that relationship, that dating, that marriage, that can become a God. So we need to find the fullness of life in Jesus and not in a broken human that's going to let us down. Not in a broken human that's going to let us down. So those are a few things that I've seen just in my life, in my 15 years of ministry, that can, can be elevated real quick to an idol, real quick to a little G God. And so back it goes on, 2.18, it says, What profit is an idol? When, when its maker shapes it, it's a image, the teacher of it, it, it's, uh, for its markers trust in his own creation, for his maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. And then he says this in verse 19, and it's a phrase that we've seen again and again repeated throughout uh, the last few verses of chapter 18 where he says, woe is him. Woe is him. Woe is him who? All that he just described and all that he's about to continue to describe. Woe to him. And what do we know about woe? It's the phrase that just is, keeps coming up and it's connected to the cup. It's connected to the cup. Think cup of Jesus in the garden praying, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. If there be any way to go about this a different way, let this cup pass from me. And so whenever, whenever he refers to cup here, it's God's wrath and his judgment being poured out on those who are not his. It's fallen mankind having to answer for their sin, for their rebellion. And he describes it as one who, who, who has an idol, who worships that idol, who follows after that idol. And look as he continues to talk about it. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it at all. Can this little G God that you're worshiping, that you're, can, it even, can it even breathe? Can it even talk? Can it even instruct you? You can try to give more and more and more to it. You can try to feed it. You can try to go after it and lift it higher and make more of it. But, but, but the reality, can it do anything for you is what he's saying. And church, hear me. There comes a time in all of our lives where we're desperate for God. Where we're going to become desperate for God. Where we're going to have a great need for God to move. And I just want to lovingly tell you this morning, if your God is you, if your God is your spouse, if your God is your health, if your God is your wealth, or your vibe or your appearance, you will be godless and have no hope. If anything or anyone is elevated beyond that of Jesus and is worshiped in that way. And so what I mean is that those things, your image, your smarts, your significance, all of that will fail you because they're going to fall woefully short. You can't be healthy enough. You can't be healthy enough whenever that call comes. You can't have enough money whenever that loss is endured. You can't have enough stuff and enough image for that to get you through whenever the ground is shaky and God, God is coming to get your attention and wants you so much to desire and love him above everything else. You can't have enough. It'll never work out. And so he tells us, woe to him. But, but, verse 20 says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. God is where he needs to be. 
In those times and those difficulties, God is going to be right there where he needs to be. And look at what he says. He says, let all the earth keep silence before him. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so this is a don't talk to God moment. That's not what he's talking about. It's not leave him alone. He's in his holy temple, so hush your mouth. Just be quiet. Let him. You, you never see that in the scriptures. You, you never see God saying, you know what? I'm just tired of you for a moment. Let me put you over here. I just need some me time. That's not the God that we serve. That's not the God that's created us. That's not the God that, that loves us and gives himself for us. No, he's, he's a relational God, and it's, it's far on the opposite side. He's like, talk to me. Come to me. I'm here. Be with me. Seek me. Desire me. L let's have conversation. Let's reason together. Let's talk. I want you to focus on me. Please talk to me. Be here. That's the God we serve. That's the heart of our God. Not a hush, leave me alone. Wait a minute. I'm tired of you. That's not the God. That's not what he's talking about. But rather what's being said here is that since the creator God of all things is speaking, listen to him, hear him, submit to him, not walk against what he is like. That's what he's talking about here. As our Lord, as he says, as the Lord is in the holy temple, let all the earth keep silent before him. And hear what he has to say. And take notice of what our God's doing, the way he's communicating. And so what we see is God has just engaged Habakkuk in some pretty in-depth and difficult stuff. Difficult conversation. Why? Because he loves Habakkuk. Because he's for Habakkuk. Because he cares about Habakkuk. And you know what, church? Sometimes we just need to be quiet and listen. Sometimes we just need to be silent for a moment and hear what God has to say. That's what we need to do. That's where we need to be. I had a football coach once tell us, and I think this was out of aggravation, but I think it's very for today, is that God's given us two ears and one mouth, so we should listen twice as much as we talk. I just think there's wisdom in that, especially as we approach God, especially as we desire God, especially as we walk with God. Sometimes we're so quick just to take things to him, like, God, do this, do that. Like, kind of like a back ache at the beginning. Like a back ache is a proud, puffed up little man, isn't he? I mean, I mean, he thinks he's got it going on. God, yes, Habakkuk, you need to do this, 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 and this. Well, Habakkuk, I appreciate that, but this is what I'm looking at doing. Uh, God, you can't do that. Habakkuk, why not? Because you're this, this, and this. Yeah, but, but, but I'm doing something far greater than you. Habakkuk, you, you, you don't even know you're right from your left. You don't even know what's going back, in, back behind you. Habakkuk, you don't know what's happening tomorrow. I'm already in tomorrow. You, you don't, you don't, tomorrow's just a thought for you. It's a reality for me. And so what God starts to do is get Habakkuk's attention. Why? Because in doing that, Habakkuk is going to stop and he's going to finally listen. He's going to finally hear God and what God's trying to say and what God's trying to do. And his heart is going to start to change tremendously. Tremendously. So he engages Habakkuk because he loves him and he cares for him. And so church, sometimes God's going to engage us and as he engages us, he's going to say some pretty weighty and heavy and tough stuff for us as well. And he does that because he loves us. He does that because he cares for us. He does that because we need to hear difficult truth from time to time. And so may we get to a place, and if we're seeking and worshiping and loving God and desiring him and running after him with everything in us, when those times come, we can hear and we can respond in a way that shows that we've submitted to him, that we love him, that we desire him. And so may we allow the difficult words and truths of God drive us to him all the more.
May they drive us to him all the more. May we recognize him as the ultimate and us as the limited. He is God and he is worthy of the ultimate love, desire, treasuring, and enjoyment. And he is for us. So this morning as I close and the band comes back up, the thing I love about our God is that he speaks to us, not like a silent idol. Not like a silent idol. He speaks to us how? Through his son Jesus. He gives us his Jesus and he speaks and he's saying that you and I, we are broken from birth. That sin just isn't an external action, just isn't an action that we do out here. But sin is the state of our heart that leads to those external actions. There are things that are, just, that are sinful, but, but we do sinful things because we're sinful people. The problem isn't the action. The problem is us. And there's nothing that you and I can do to fix it. Nothing that we can do to fix it. God is going to have to fix it for us. And he does it through Jesus by giving and sending Jesus himself in the flesh to do what? To live a righteous life under the law, not breaking not one law, not sinning not one time. And then what happens is that he'll impute that righteousness, that right standing, that, that right standing before God to the men and women who put their faith and trust in him, who enter into relationship with him. See, see, on the cross, all the wrath, church, all the wrath meant for you and me and our rebellion, what is it? It's absorbed by Jesus so that we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, set free to pursue God. Set free to engage, set free to be quiet, set free to, to hear what God's saying. Set free to engage in relationship. So my question for you as we end is, how do you identify idols? How do you know if, if one of these things that I've mentioned or the, the millions of other little things that, that's out there that can become a little God, little G God in our life so quick, how do we know if those are present in our life? So I've got a few questions for you. What consumes most of your thoughts and feelings? What, what consumes most of your thoughts? What do you think about the most? What, what consumes most of your feelings? What you've got feelings toward? An easy way to identify whether that's an idol or not. What motivates the things that you do? Why do you do what you do, when you do, how you do? What motivates that? Maybe this is a good way to identify whether it's an idol or not. What are you afraid of? What brings fear, strikes fear in you? What, what are you afraid of? What about this? What about what brings the, most, uh, the highest amount of frustration or anger into your life? Maybe that's become a God. Maybe that's become an idol. What's, what is one thing that can change your mood in a second? Is it a post? Is it a person? Is it if a situation doesn't work out just right? Maybe that's become the idol that you worship. Mm, this is a good one. What are some things that you feel you just cannot live without? If I was to roll up and say, I need that. Uh, a little too close to home. No, nope, something else. Uh, what's the thing that you can't say no to? You just can't do without. Maybe another way to ask it is this. What do you yearn for? Kind of a weird word in our culture, but what do you long for? What do you want so badly that you just have to have? That could be an idol. That could be the God that you worship. Or maybe to put it like this, what is one thing that you wish God would do for you? If God would just do this, maybe that's become an idol. And so if you begin to answer those questions and you begin to think through some of those questions that I've mentioned and you find out that maybe there is idols or there's something there that's, that's kind of maybe pricked your heart or kind of uh, uh, aroused you a little bit in, a, in, in asking that question and thinking through some of those things, 
Maybe it's time to do something with them. Maybe it's time to put them back on the shelf where they belong and elevate God to where he belongs. Because what you think about, what you yearn for, what you talk about most, what you want God to do for you, what drives you, what makes you angry, what satisfies you, what brings you comfort, is ultimately what you worship. And that is ultimately your God. And as we see in the scripture here this morning, what prophet is an idol church? It's a false God, a dead God that can do absolutely, positively nothing for us. A moment of happiness pales in comparison to an eternity of joy. And the only one that can bring joy is that of Jesus and a relationship with him. So whatever idol you're worshiping, whatever God's doing in your heart, in your life this morning, man, I pray that you would diagnose and that you would do whatever you have to do to destroy the idol in your life. Elevate God back to where he belongs. Father, we need you. Lord, help us. God, as I read that list, as I looked at that list, there are certain things in my life right now that consume me if I'm not careful, that I think about way too much, that I ponder on far too much. And so, Father, I just pray, Jesus, that you would move. God, in me, first and foremost, help me to keep my eyes on you. Help me to elevate you and put you in your rightful places utmost. Father, do a work in this place this morning, I pray. God, help us identify our idols. Help us leave them at the altar and worship and desire you far above anything else. In your name we pray. Amen. If you would stand this morning, the band's going to lead us in a time of response. If you need to come pray, if you need to find somebody to talk to, whatever you need to do in this moment, you just be obedient to God.